Meet Alicia. She's been dealing with Candida for a long time and puzzled as to why she can't get rid of it once and for all. She's done a very strict diet. And I'm talking the real deal. No carbs, no sugar. She was militant and did this for months. She felt better for a while, but soon after resuming normal eating, which by the way was still very healthy, it came back. She then worked with several practitioners and did tons of antifungal herbs. Everything from oregano to grapefruit seed extract to garlic to podarco and more. But again, she felt better during and for a short while after, but all of her issues came back very soon after stopping the regimen. It just didn't want to go away. When I met Alicia, I could see the frustration in her face, and I could also see how diligent she really was with all of her past protocols, so I knew there was something else going on. I noticed that she ate a good amount of fish, lived in an old house, and had some symptoms of estrogen dominance, which all can affect this. Additionally, most of the tests she had run were gut-related, and many other important markers were missing. I knew exactly where to look so that we can put the missing pieces together and solve this health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Alicia's struggles with chronic candida and her confusion about what else could be underlying this. Join me on the show today to talk more about this is Dr. Michael Biamonte. I had him on last year when we chatted about Candida being the great mimicker, which was definitely a fan favorite episode. And with all of his expertise on the topic, I knew that he was the guy to bring back for this. Dr. Biamonte was actually my original naturopathic doctor and clinical nutritionist. He's the one that showed me all of my ailments were really related and the reasons why I was experiencing all of those things back when I was dealing in my health journey in 2003. He is the founder of the Biamonte Center for Clinical Nutrition, and as a 30-year practitioner, he's dedicated to improving the lives of his patients and helping them get back to living. He's also the author of the Candida Chronicles, a manual for candida yeast infections. Dr. Biamonte, I am so happy to have you back. Welcome, welcome. Always wonderful to talk to you, Mina. So in episode 33, we really got into the details of candida. And for everyone listening, if you missed that episode, tons of clinical pearls there. So be sure to check it out. Now, in this case, Alicia was following a lot of the straight candida protocols, but her issues kept coming back. And while, of course, there's various reasons for why this can happen, a biggie is metals. Dr. B, what is the relationship between metals and candida? Well, about 25% of older people with chronic candida, and what I mean, when I say chronic candida, I'm referring to candida, which will continue to plague them for five years or more, and will usually come back within six months after being cleared by whatever the program or medication is. 25% of those people have toxic metals, and there are two toxic metals in particular that are more associated with candida because they are uh, stimulating the growth of the candida in different ways. There's a third one that's also involved. So 
The first two are copper and mercury, mm -hmm. and they have different physiological actions in how they cause candida. Copper and mercury both depress the immune system when they're in toxic, at toxic levels. You know, copper is an essential mineral, and without, when you have a copper deficiency, you can experience the same symptoms as vitamin C deficiency, and you can also develop very aggressive cancers. So it's not like copper is a bad thing. Your body needs copper. But too much copper, unfortunately, is very estrogenic in the body. And the excess copper will stimulate the growth of candida via estrogen. Mercury has a bit of a different way it goes about it. Mercury depresses fecal IgA. So when a person has mercury toxicity, it directly depresses the immune response in their intestinal tract. Mm -hmm. Now, also, there's some, some doctors have speculated that candida feeds on mercury and candida absorbs mercury as a food. I don't know if that's true. One doctor stretched this to the point of saying that candida actually was a protective mechanism against mercury, that your, your body grows candida to protect it against mercury, which is absolutely hogwash. Because if mercury depresses the immune response in your intestines, of course it's going to allow candida to grow. And the fact that the candida absorbs mercury, it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily um, mean that that's something it's doing knowingly to protect you. Just the mere fact that the mercury depresses the immune system and allows it to overgrow, overgrow is, is more than enough for the um, organism to absorb the metal like many organisms can. So those are the two metals that are most prevalent. Uh, of course, copper and mercury are, are um, part of the amalgam alloy. So people very often get copper and mercury from amalgam fillings. But you can also get them from other independent sources, as we, as we know. Copper very typically comes from uh, old copper pipes that people have. And mercury can also come from fish. Those are very common contaminants. The other toxic metal which tends to cause candida is aluminum. And the reason why aluminum does that is because aluminum is very alkalizing. If you, if you take a look at the ingredients in a lot of heartburn medications and antacids, you'll see it's either some type of calcium carbonate or some form of aluminum. And that aluminum can over-alkalize your intestinal tract. And here's where we, we get into confusion for a lot of people. Because when, the, when candida grows in your intestines, the environment it likes to grow in is a very alkaline one. It likes your intestinal pH to generally be above 7.4. So excessive alkalinity in your intestinal tract is bad. Now, with that, you may start getting all kinds of nasty letters and calls from people who are the alkaline uh, fanatics that get into like everything being as alkaline as possible for blindly without really understanding what's going on. To have your blood or your urine be slightly alkaline is a good thing but not your intestinal pH. When the pH of the intestinal tract becomes too alkaline, candida grows and your bowels slow down. Likewise, when it becomes too acid, you get other types of bacteria that overgrow and, and parasites, and then you become, your bowels can go into a very, being very loose or diarrhea. So there has to be the correct balance. Yeah. And, you know, I am so glad you're mentioning this because I think so, so many people are very confused. Like you said, you know, people jump on the alkaline 
bandwagon and it's all about alkaline water. And again, like there's a time and place. And like you said, you want your blood to be more alkaline, but not the intestines. And I have to just share a personal experience. And I don't know if you remember this, Dr. B, because we're going back almost 20 years. But when my candida issues started, and you know, again, I think for me, there was a lot of underlying stuff from having a lot of antibiotics as a child and not eating well and being exposed to metals. But while I wasn't feeling great, when I was young, you know, I didn't really have any major, major symptoms until I started to do green juices and specifically even more green powders. And I remember, I forget the name of the supplement exactly, but it was a green powder that I would mix in water and it was touted to be something that's going to help everything and fix everything under the sun. And the protocol was to do one scoop of this, you know, three or four times a day. And within about three weeks of doing this is when I started getting yeast infections and a lot of my candida issues. And the person who was selling these green supplements at the time was saying, well, no, this is just detox. It's normal. Just keep going. So I kept going. Um, But then it just got worse. And I said, you know what? I I can't do this anymore. I'm going to stop. And when I stopped, it didn't go away. It actually got worse. So I think it's another example of over alkalizing in addition to also me having metals and other things. So I'm so glad you bring that up. I think the product you were taking, if I remember, was green magma. Maybe. It might have, or yeah, it might be. But not to say the product is bad, but just to, it goes to show you that you were already in an alkaline state and that threw you over the edge. And that's when then the yeast infections became noticeable. So Yeah. And I remember talking to different doctors more on the conventional side, of course, before I met you and they all kind of looked at me like I was crazy and they're like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, that's true. They didn't. Okay. So then with the metal, so we talked about copper is something that is found in amalgams as well as in um, copper pipes. What are some other things um, that copper is founded? Maybe some things that are a little bit less obvious that people may not know about um, that can bring more exposure to them. Uh, one thing women don't think of often is copper IUDs, which is if you have candida, that's a great way of igniting the fire. If you have a copper IUD, because the copper leaches into your system and then you have, you're, you're, you're stuck with the same problem. Um, there are certain foods that are higher in copper than others, but for someone to really get a high copper level from food is difficult. The type of if someone follows a vegetarian diet, and they're not really meant for that. Now, in my book, how I would look at it is you have a someone who's a blood type O, let's say, following a vegetarian diet. What's going to happen is due to the lack of protein that the O typically needs, that they're not going to get. And the, the high amount of copper in the vegetarian diet, you're going to downregulate their adrenal and thyroid glands. If you were to ask Dr. Watts from Trace Elements, Inc., how often he sees high copper patterns in hair tests in people who are vegetarians, they'll tell you it's probably 60 to, 70, 60 to 80% of the time. So that, that vegetarian pattern that he recognizes in the hair mineral test which is high calcium and magnesium versus a low sodium potassium with a high copper. That is the, that's also known as the low thyroid or slow metabolism pattern. And it's definitely someone now with low adrenal, low thyroid function, which is obviously going to make the situations worse because that means that they're, that part of their immune system that's sympathetic, innervated, or st- stimulated by the adrenals and thyroid is going to be down. So it's another way of suppressing the immune system. And the, really, that's the only way. If you're, 
it doesn't happen so much to men, but if a woman who's estrogen dominant, who's doing a vegetarian diet that's high in copper and especially high in soy, which downregulates your thyroid, and soy as a food may be one of the highest in copper. And then you've got to also come, come against the unfortunate fact that almost all the soy you're going to encounter is GMO. So nobody could really say then what's going to happen at that point because there haven't really been any, any studies done on how the body processes a GMO soy versus a, a natural soy. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what the, rep, the, the, the um, implications of that are going to be. But suffice to say, vegetarian women are at a higher risk for copper just based on their diet. Yeah. And then if those vegetarian women also take birth control pills, <laughs> that's going to potentially increase estrogen more. And I know that's another potential culprit too. Yeah, that throws it over the top. Now, when it comes to copper pipes, is it any copper pipes or copper pipes that are specifically in older homes, like over 50 or say 75 years old? Yes, it's very specifically old copper plumbing that are in older homes. Usually they're... Uh, you find this very typically in brownstones in New York City. They have old copper pipes, and just about every patient I've ever had who lived in one of those had very high copper. And you'll also see that if you look at the, the metal drain in the um, in the houses, in the sink, in the shower, you're going to see that they're stained green. So green, when they have a green stain to them, that's the copper. If they have an orange stain, that's the iron that they may have in the water. So that's a that's a key thing to look for to um, to get an idea. Also, if you just if the person just turns their water on and it it runs dirty for a bit, that's something they should have tested because they're not going to know what complex of metals. It could be iron, lead, could be copper, could be manganese, could be whatever they used out on the street to weld or seal the pipes. So uh, dirty water like that immediately needs to be investigated because. You, you could, it could be copper and other things. The other toxic metal I failed to mention, or potentially toxic metal, is iron. Um, ex- excess of iron, when it's toxic, also can stimulate yeast. Yeah. Now, with iron, is it more that people would be getting it from an outside source, like water, or is it that some people just store extra iron, like if someone, let's say, has high ferritin due to certain inflammatory reasons? I think the majority of the time it's going to be as an environmental contaminant rather than their own biological systems being off. Because when it's, when it's an environmental contaminant, they're getting it in such a high dose that it's going, to, it's going to cause all these issues. It's going to cause rashes. It's going to cause um, yeast infections. In a man, it causes overgrowth of yeast in the groin and the crotch and throughout the intestinal tract. So it's, it's, I, from my experience, I've seen it more as an environmental toxin. Yeah. So we talked about some of the sources of copper. In terms of mercury, I know we talked about amalgams and fish. Any other mercury sources that maybe are not as common that or not as obvious that people may not be aware of? Off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of any right now. Okay. And then what about aluminum? You mentioned the um, anti-acid medications. And of course, cans. Mm-hmm. And then deodorant. And then deodorant, right. Those are all common. Regular deodorant, yeah. Anything else? Well, you know, with all of these metals, generally speaking, you've got to look um, over a list of possible things. Normally, when I find a patient has an elevated metal, I pull out a list that has all the possible sources, and I go through the list with them. And I get them to to tell me what they remember or if they can identify any of them. Because there's – really, when you if you go on the internet and you start to search for – sources of copper toxicity or mercury or whatever, you come up with so many possible things that it's 
it's not anything that's practical for you to commit to memory. So it's better to have a list and go over it with the patient because you never know what's going to happen. You find sometimes people who, who did a lot of work with arts and crafts um, ended up, will end up having a lot of these metals in their system because they were working with the metals and they were either soldering the metals or filing them. And those, those dusts from the metals get on their, get on their skin and absorb. Like some of the high, as an example, some of the highest cases of mercury that I've ever seen were in dentists who came to me as patients. Dentists were, who were exhibiting full-blown mercury poisoning symptoms because they were drilling the amalgams. The amalgam vapors were going up in the air and they were breathing them right in. Right. Yeah, for sure. And then artists too, you know, people that sculpt paint. or and paint and yeah, different paints. What we'll do is we'll um, pull up some lists and we'll post them in the show notes for people to see, you know, some of the other sources of these metals. And people will be surprised when they go through the list. And, and certainly if they have, if they recognize in themselves, if, they, if they're, if there's someone who's, who's listening to your show because they're suffering with chronic yeast and they happen to find that there's something on that list really rings for them that they were exposed to. They should definitely call you and have some testing done to uh, get that identified. Yeah. Or you. Yeah. So let's talk about testing. What are some ways that people can test for metals and depending on the metal, are there certain tests that you like better for one metal versus the others? Well, in my practice, we've always standardly used hair analysis. And the reason why is because hair analysis not only shows us, the toxic metal, but it also shows us the level of all the beneficial metals, how they interact with, with, with each other, like how calcium would interact with magnesium, but then also how the toxic metal could interact with the, the beneficial mineral. So we've always used that as, an, as a basic screening. There are times when the hair analysis won't show the toxic metal, and that's where we get into a little bit more of complication because these are generally, this is generally in people who have very bad detoxification systems. When you do other testing on them, you'll see that their phase one and phase two is down. Their glutathione levels are low. They're just bad detoxifiers. They may also genetically, when you test them, show to be bad detoxifiers. These people have the metals, but their body is so locked up that it can't mobilize the metals and transport them and excrete them. So for these types of people, we would often do stool or urine tests for metals, but we do them challenged or provoked. So we will give them a chelating agent like DMPS um, or DMSA or EDTA, have them take that for an interval of time, and then, then have them submit the urine or the stool sample to see if we're getting it to flow. And there, there are cases of people who needed to chelate, and this is before a lot of the information about correcting glutathione pathways and whatnot was known. But I've heard of people chelating for a year or so before any of the metals started to show up in the test. Wow. Usually once the metal starts to show up in the urine or stool test, you'll then find the metal in the hair shortly after that because now it's now the body's able to take it out of um, storage where it is and bring it back into circulation and then get it excreted. So you're going to get a certain amount of it being redeposited in the hair and coming out through the stool and urine. Yeah, and that's a really important point that the hair is showing what your body is really currently excreting, not necessarily what's just in there. So for copper, is hair the best test or can you do that in urine if let's say someone's a non-excreter, is there a way to see that in urine? 
Yeah, you can you can definitely chelate them with EDTA or DMSA. All of both have been found to be effective against copper. You can chelate them, and you'll find you can find it eventually in the urine and stool. But on the other hand, um, the levels of copper in the hair were documented several times in studies showing that they directly correlated with the level of copper stored in the liver. But that doesn't supplant the concept that if the person's a bad detoxifier, they still can't mobilize the copper. Some people have had very good results by doing a series of coffee enemas to bring the bile down. Because the reason why bile is green is because bile is heavily contains copper ions, which is why it's green. So doing a lot of coffee enemas and flushing that bile down can sometimes get the copper flowing again in the body. Mm, interesting. And what about blood testing for copper? Would that show anything? You have to test for ceruloplasm, which is the copper binding protein. Testing for copper or any element on its own is not valid unless the person's being exposed directly on a daily basis and it's like a toxic level. Like in the old days, when they would test kids for lead in their blood because they might be you know, eating the, the paint chips and all this business, the kids would show high levels of lead if they were actively exposed to it. But once they stop for a few weeks, the lead totally clears from the bloodstream. And then you have to look at their hair because it's stored in the hair. Yeah. And that's just a very good sort of compensatory mechanism because if the body wouldn't get rid of it from the blood, it would make you really, really sick. So our body's constantly trying to shove stuff away under the rug into our fat cells or hair or bone or wherever so that we're not so toxic. So that makes sense. And for the serialplasm test, that would be a good way to see copper levels if someone has that level elevated? Yeah. Ceruloplasm would be a big hint that you have elevated copper because the reason your body makes ceruloplasm, which is a copper binding protein, is to help transport and mobilize the copper. So if you're seeing elevated ceruloplasm, you know the body's probably dealing with a higher amount of copper stored somewhere. And then for mercury, you know, with the hair test, you know, that's showing methylmercury, but if someone has a lot of amalgams, are you seeing that come through or how else can we see that? The funny thing that was found by doctor's data quite a few years ago is that if the person had certain imbalances in their flora, in their intestinal tract, people who had amalgam mercury would show, it would show in their hair. Because the tr traditional think is that amalgam mercury would be, um, um, is more, is methyl mercury and then um, the more organic mercury would be what you would get from fish. That's been called fish mercury is the more organic mercury or elemental mercury. Right, right. Versus the inorganic would be the amalgam. And so the doctor's data found that people who had really disordered flora, and I think what they were hinting to was candida, that very often the methyl mercury would show in the hair just like it was elemental, mm -hmm. which was interesting. And I did find that to be true in my own research. Um, but generally speaking, the methylmercury from dental amalgams is not supposed to show in the hair. Right. Only fish mercury would. Um, the Traditionally, doctors have used urine challenge tests or even stool challenge tests for the methylmercury to see if the person's amalgams were leaking. And then in the old days, there was a, a, a test called the mercury vapor test, which was like a Geiger counter device that they would put in your mouth. They'd have you chew gum first. And then they would put this thing in your mouth like a Geiger counter and they would put it right up to each filling. And if the filling was leaking mercury vapors, the machine would react. But don't 
all fillings leak, especially if you're chewing something or eating something hot? To a degree, they do. Yeah, that's normal that they would, they would, but they were looking for extreme leaking that would then in those days, it would then be um, a valid issue to take up with the insurance company to remove it, remove and replace. Right. Right. No, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know that doctors do that. The people that were doing that in New York had, had hell to pay because the um, New York state came down on them. They didn't feel that there was, this was a valid thing to do, but I know you never know with these things, but anyway, <laughs> right. I don't right. want to get into the politics of it. That's just, that's that. I just tell people that that does exist. Yeah. It still exists out there, the technology, but typically you would um, like, you're probably familiar with porphyrin tests for the blood, mm-hmm. which are an indication that there's the presence of mercury in the bloodstream. It's not looking for mercury again, because as we said before, it may not be there. But uh, the porphyrins in your blood are a, a definite sign that mercury could be present. So you have that. And then you have urinary challenges. And I like to, I personally, over the years, have combined all three tests. Because when, what the detox cycle that you're getting that excretes mercury from your kidneys and your urine is different than the one that excretes it from the bowels and your stool. So you can get an idea of what's going on with the person, how well they can detox when you do all the tests. You do the hair, you do the urine, you do the stool. You get a complete look, and usually that enables you to very quickly pinpoint where they're, where they're lacking in their ability to detoxify, and then you correct that. And now you, now you have um, usually the real trouble begin, because once they start detoxifying the mercury, if it's not done correctly and if they're not smooth and how they do it, a certain degree of the mercury reabsorbs into your body and causes a cascade of symptoms. Now, how you eliminate that is by using products that bind the mercury once it enters your intestinal tract. A product that's been on the market for many years made by, I believe it's, it's either cardiovascular research or allergy research group. They're kind of sister companies. It's called Metachel. And Metachel used to contain polymers of, of hair fibers, mammal fibers, and also some fibers from pectins and carrots. And it was, it was able to bind the metal in your intestinal tract and stop it from reabsorbing. Also, citrus pectin can do that. Yep. I remember taking that a while back for sure. The bottom line is when a person's detoxing mercury or any metals, they've got to be taking substances which have the ability to bind the metal in their intestinal tract so that the metal just doesn't reabsorb again. And that's, that keeps the symptoms, that they, uh, the bad reactions down to a minimum. Yeah. And I think that this is also such an important point because so many people, you know, whether they're doing chelation um, or they're doing certain nutrients that have these chelating effects, if they're not binding, if they're not supporting their bile and really working with their intestines, they're not really going to get a good result. That happened to me at one point when I started doing some of this on my own back in the day. I'm actually a big fan of the Quicksilver products because they support the binding. You know, they have a couple of different binders and then they have the silica extract to help as you dump the metals to kind of bind that in the gut. Um, And of course, the glutathione and vitamin C's. And then along with it also, you know, things that kind of absorb liposomally so you can kind of push stuff out and then catch it. They have this one thing called push catch. Um, I don't know if you use that, but I like that a lot. And so, you know, you take the push and then 30 minutes later, you take the catch, which is a binder that has, you know, the clays and the acacia gum and, um, you know, a few other things that, you know, kind of help to support the whole binding process. Yep, that's completely valid. Very good. When it comes to candida and metals, 
do you find that you have to test for both at the same time so that you know that both are present and then you have a better way to think about how you're going to go from there and which you support first? Well, you can. Um, that's, that's definitely a good, a good methodology. But on the other hand, you have to also look at the patient and what their situation is because the, the tests that we're talking about could easily amount to three or $400. And being that it's only, let's say, 25%, in my opinion, of the patients with chronic candida that have metals, I don't know that I would just put them through that, that expense right off the bat. That's, that's my consideration. It, there's, we have, I have the same consideration when it comes to hormone imbalances in people with candida. Uh, at, at one time, we would um, check, like if any woman had PMS or, or if um, she would tell me that she notices she gets yeast infections at a predictable time of her menstrual cycle, we would automatically test her hormones. After a while, we started to see that when women went on the Candida program, any sort of hormone relationship to the Candida would just clear up on its own after a certain time on the Candida treatment. So I then adopted the policy that I wasn't going to test the person immediately and have them go through that expense of a few hundred dollars. That what we would do first is we'd have the person do the Candida treatment for maybe four or five months. And if the hormones didn't seem to improve, then we would test their hormones and then directly intervene in, in um, tweaking them. But I always like to allow the person to have their body be able to do it on their own first and save them the expense. And so would the timing be similar with metals where you would do the candida protocol for a few months and then test for metals, especially if they're not getting to where they want to go? Yeah, well, the, the key buzz on that is they're not improving. Right. When you have a person that's on a treatment and not improving, your quality control has to kick in. And when quality control kicks in, it's got to look for reasons that um, would be stopping the treatment from working or working against it. And there, that's where you definitely have metals or hormone imbalances and various other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was exactly what was happening with Alicia. She was doing a lot of stuff and it would get a little better and then it would get worse again and a little better and get worse. And she just wasn't really getting anywhere. There you go. Yep. So do you find that for the 25% of people that have metals along with candida, is it typically a little bit of all of the metals you mentioned, or is it typically one main one? You know, because some people say, well, once there's one, you know, there may be others in there. What do you usually see? What I've seen over the years is that it's usually one outstanding element that they have that's related to candida. Where you start to see multiple metals is depending on what that person's exposure source was. Like if they were a welder, if they worked in the automobile industry, where there are multiple metals that they could be exposed to due to exhaust fumes or, or things. When, years ago, when there was lead in gasoline, people who worked in the auto, auto mechanic um, industry, you very typically see they'd be high in lead, they'd be high in cadmium, they could be high in iron, in different elements that are associated with their, their daily work and working with the machines and the different fuel. And same thing with a welder and uh, obviously somebody who's a miner. You know, these are kind of obvious things. But for most people who don't have an occupation or who don't have a particular hobby where they're going to obviously be encountering a host of metals, 
it's usually one that's outstanding that they're happening they're happening to get like as an example we had a family not too long ago just all these problems candida raging nothing was working we did a hair test on them we found out they were all very iron toxic traced it back to they they uh, for years and years and years used iron cookware yeah and that's a big one and you know people always think cast iron pants they're so healthy no chemicals but it can add up and you get the same thing with copper cookware so it's you know usually the person somehow in their life has this one source or their well water is another big one that you'll find toxic metals yeah it's something it's really something to when the person's not uh, improving the way they should and that you can document with some kind of confidence that they are doing what they're supposed to, uh, then it's time to start going through the questions and asking them, like if it's a woman, if there's if there are obviously a hormone-related issues, one of the, the better questions is, do they have yeast infections that occur at a typical time of the month? And then, then again, you'll also ask them about the their possible exposure to metals. And if they're having, if, if it looks like in the past they had exposure to metals, or they're having hormone problems that seem to involve their yeast problems, then testing them is, is a very logical thing to do because they're not going to get better unless you correct those problems. Yeah, for sure. I know for me, I had both copper and mercury and I had a lot of amalgam fillings at the time, which thankfully I've had all of them removed since. But you know, those were the two that are in the amalgam. So it made a lot of sense. And interestingly for me, when we did a hair test, I did not show any mercury at all, but my copper was really high. And we started to detox the copper and we worked a lot on the different antagonistic nutrients like zinc and vitamin C and B6. And the copper actually went up. You know, I remember we retested four months later and I got the results and I was so upset. I'm like, wait a minute, my copper was at like a 5.5 and now it's at a nine. What's going on? And obviously that was just showing that there was so much more there. My body was actually excreting it. And I think it went up even one more time. I think it got as high as 12 on the hair test, you know, until it came down. And then interestingly enough, it wasn't until the copper was in a more normal range that the mercury started to show up because the mercury was almost at zero for months and months and months because the body was almost prioritizing. It's very interesting. If um, if one reads Dr. Watts's textbook, I believe um, it's called Trace Elements. It's written by David L. Watts. He's the owner of the, the lab that we use for hair testing. He, he talks about that phenomena, that people with high copper and high mercury usually will have the mercury hidden until you get rid of the copper. And then once the copper clears, then the body's able to mobilize the mercury. And it's due to the, it's due to the fact that the copper is interfering with liver detoxification and thyroid to the degree where it then can't mobilize the mercury. So the mercury, copper will come out first and then mercury will follow. And at one point he wrote an article where he actually drew a wheel that showed the interrelationship between all the toxic metals and the beneficial ones. And he showed how, um, let's say if a person had even 10 or 12 toxic metals in their body, he showed you the order in which you would see them on the test. And he explained, as you just did, that it would be typical that the level would elevate in the hair, which does scare a lot of people at first. But the, the logical explanation for that, which ends up being true, is the because the body's unloading lots of metal that we didn't even know was there. It's just keeps, uh, it will keep elevating and elevating until it's dumped. 
And then the next group of metals will then be, be able to be mobilized and then removed. Yeah. And that's why I always tell people that, you know, I love hair testing as you do. And, you know, there's a lot of really great things we can see, but you typically don't want to just do one hair test and call it a day. You know, you do one and kind of see where things are and then start to address some stuff. And then you always want to retest because sometimes the first one may not look too bad, um, but if you're having issues, chances are there is something there that's underlying. So it's always good to kind of do a few, see what happens and then look at the patterns. Yeah, it would be. I usually tell the patients that we're, we're going to do the test. If we find anything wrong, we're going to cr- seek to correct it and we're going to repeat the test until it's clean and it's corrected. Because if we don't do that, then we're guessing that it's fixed. Mm-hmm. Like there are sometimes people will say, I feel so much better. It's got to be fa- It's got to be better. And then you you go ahead and test them. Then you see it's better, but it's still not where it should be. Yeah, and I know that it's obviously so nice when someone's feeling better and you just want to say, okay, great, you know, but without seeing it, you're right, because they might be feeling better, but they may, because they're 100% clear, you know, then something else may happen, like they may be stressed or they may eat something that isn't good and then it'll just throw them back down. So yes, the more we can correct, the better, of course, until everything's good. You know, you never want to assume. It's like, because this is science. And in science, you don't want to assume things. You want to operate based on facts because if you assume, you make an ass out of you and me, as you know from the, <laughs> the Odd Couple episode. Yep. Where Felix writes that, writes that on the blackboard in the in the courtroom. Right. <laughs> uh, Dr. B, thank you so much for all of this information. So helpful. Um, and I think that, you know, it's just so good to know about this connection with metals and candida and especially how each metal affects things and why there's a correlation. I really um, loved for everyone to hear this. So thank you so much. Um, and for those that want to connect with you, how can they reach you? Well, they can come to our website. We have several. Um, for candida, we have a website that's the New York City Candida Doctor, and they can also go to our main website, health-truth.com, and they can contact us easily through the websites. Perfect. And I will post all of this in the show notes for you guys for easy reference. Dr. B, thank you so much for being here again. I really appreciate all of your expertise and insights, and uh, we will talk soon. All right, Ina. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to speak to you today. You just heard about the very strong connection between candida and heavy metals. And in Alicia's case, the reason her candida would not budge was because of just that. After running a heavy metal panel through Quicksilver Scientific, as well as a hair test through Trace Mineral Labs, I found Elisa had a big load of copper in her body and she had a little bit of mercury as well. I also suspected the mercury may be even higher than it was showing because the copper was the primary metal her body was trying to excrete first. So we started working on the copper first and I had Alicia take one P5PB6, two zinc supremes, one NIC, six pumps of bitter X and one teaspoon of C biophys a day while also cleaning up her diet a bit and making sure that her water was coming from a clean and pure source. She was drinking tap water, so I recommended the AquaTrue pitcher, which uses reverse osmosis technology. We retested her hair in four months, and so the copper was down to about 75% of where it was before. And as expected, the mercury was up a bit, showing that it was there all along, but just not being excreted. I then added IMD by Quicksilver Scientific, along with liposomal glutathione and a binder called the Ultra Binder. 
Alicia had access to an infrared sauna, so we utilized that a few days a week as well while continuing with the clean diet that was low in fish. This was a bit of a journey because she had a lot of metals and they've been there for a long time. But after six more months, the metals were down and in the normal range. We then did a little candida cleanup because the metal detox can flare things up a bit. So we used a combination of tricycline and FC-cytal followed by SF722 for its antifungal benefits. When we were done, Alicia was feeling great. Her digestion improved significantly, brain fog, skin irritations, and yeast infections were gone, and her energy was way better. Also glad to report that a year after finishing the protocol, still no yeast issues. She was so happy it was really finally gone. If Alicia sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them. And make sure you subscribe to the show because the next topic or health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. As always, when it comes to your health issues, please don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.